Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! How's it going, everybody? Your Ben Jaromsky Show for Thursday, January 13th, is brought to you by... SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. Are you fake smoking pot right now, <laughs> Ben? What's going on here? Uh, I love it. Whenever you get to the, the part where you talk about reefer. He's smoking air doobies. God, I wish I was still smoking reefer. Man, good old days. Hey. <laughs> Right, I love it when our guests join us, but I always like it when they turn off the uh, the sound. Don't well, you agree, uh, D? Yeah, yeah. Let's try it again. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. For all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, it's true, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory. SKY. It is Thursday, January 13th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, we welcome back Maya Dukmasova. And also making his Ben Jarofsky show return, he plays the guitar. PC Peter Cunningham. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Wimpy Liberal Thursday, and here's why. Before I bring Maya Dukmasafa on, I got to just share this, folks. I got a text bright and early this morning from none other than Carlos Ramirez Rosa, alderman of the uh, 35th Ward. Carlos, shout it out to you. Thanks for sending me this text. I don't know what motivated him to send me this text, D, but out of nowhere, here it came. He was up bright and early today uh, sending out texts. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It just made me laugh out loud. Hold on. Where is the text? He goes, um, oh, okay. So he sent me a poll. Americans value health and safety over in-person learning. And he said a poll shows class divide and return to in-person learning. This is a point that uh, often gets lost. Uh, workers compensated less than $99,000 a year, much more likely to support remote learning than workers compensated over a uh, for a hundred thousand who make more than a hundred thousand years most opposed this is carlos writing to remote our republicans earning more than a hundred thousand so tell your frou-frou liberal friends to stand with the working class who has experienced the most harm and deaths during this pandemic and that just made me laugh out loud frou-frou liberal friends i don't know what <laughs> carlos you got more frou-frou liberal friends in the 35th ward no but uh, that's an excellent point uh, carlos and i applaud you for making it there's just this general notion that's been advanced 
Uh, and it's been advanced by um, like the, the centrists in the Democratic Party. It's been advanced by the mainstream media. I, I see it. It's bombarding me at all times. It's this notion that somehow or other we must keep the school doors open regardless of what. Because children need to be in school. And I think there's polls that show that liberals who make more than 100 grand, which is kind of what Carlos is getting at, uh, really support this notion. I think that was really motivating Lori Lightfoot. This last fight, this last spat with the teachers union uh, over opening the schools was clearly a political maneuver by Lori Lightfoot to distinguish herself, differentiate herself from the lefties in the Chicago teachers union who are taking, in my humble opinion, a very pragmatic approach, which is that if things get overwhelming with uh, Omicron, we should close the schools for a day or two. But they put out this notion that schools must always be open and kids must be always going to schools at all times. Otherwise, they're going to commit suicide. How many times have I heard that? Like rates of teenage suicide or children's suicide have risen since uh, COVID. That proves that you got to go back to school. I'm like... I, how do you know that's the direct correlation there? But that's just this like point that keeps getting put out. And, and I'm going to give a, I'm going to say this, Carlos, I see it uh, all the time uh, in the, the media. Uh, I love block club. Uh, shout out to Jen Sabella. Big time shout out to her. I think they've done great work at block club, but it seems to me they always drag up the same North side parents Whenever they do like an interview, Northside moms very concerned about school being shuttered again. And then they quote some someone who's like dropping in his or her kids, sometimes a Northside dad. Oh, I just can't stand that Chicago Teachers Union. I'm moving to Evanston. Hey, guys, got news for you. Up in Evanston, they have all the protocols and safety procedures that the CTU has been uh, recommending. Just saying that. So all these North Side liberals who are so mad at the teachers union are going to run to Evanston or run to Winneka or run to Wilmette. I don't know where they're going to run to. And guess what? Their kids are going to be protected because those school systems have the safety protocols in them on their own. They don't need teachers going out, walking out to get them. It's because the politicians in those towns, the people who run the boards of education, know that they are expected of them that they have proper safety protocols. So I just, um, I want to thank Carlos for sending that to me. Uh, it's a point uh, well taken. I also want to say something I thought I would never say before I bring my Duke Masaf on, uh, my partner in crime, my old partner in crime at the reader and still at the hideout. I, there's a part of me D Oh God, my eyes going to get so mad at me. There's a part of me that really wishes Donald Trump was a lefty. And the reason I say this is because Every now and I can understand why MAGA loves Donald Trump so much. No collusion. Yes. <laughs> Maya's like, oh, God, I can't believe I have to hear this. But he, he had this comment the other day. I forget. Oh, I think it was with the NPR reporter. And he was talking about, talk about wimpy, want to have it both ways, politicians. Guys like Governor DeSantis in Florida who got vaccinated, got the booster, but don't want to say they got the booster because they're going to alienate MAGA, which is even booing Trump for saying you should get the booster. Trump, by the way, wants it both ways. He wants credit for, quote, unquote, inventing the vaccine, which, of course, he had nothing to do with the invention of it. Uh, and he does not want to alienate uh, MAGA by um, saying he's for mandates. But DeSantis won't even admit that he got the booster shot. And so, and so Trump goes, that's gutless, <laughs> gutless. 
And I tested like, very <laughs> positively in, a, in another sense. Uh, yeah, okay, makes sense if you're really high. Anyway, when I, when I, read, I agree with Donald Trump. They are gutless. I wish uh, more lefties would take strong stands like that. All right, enough of that. Got Maya Dukmasova with me, um, ace reporter for Injustice Watch, my former partner in crime at the Chicago uh, Reader, and still my partner in crime at the Hideout. Uh, she wrote an excellent article uh, that's like an education for everybody out there on how uh, we the judicial process works in the state of Illinois and Cook County. Yes, take your pens and paper out, take notes, because you're gonna. There's gonna be a test on this at the end. Uh, Maya, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, and before we get started, I'm allowing you the opportunity to give hideout updates uh, on um, our first Tuesday show. We had a great first Tuesday. First Tuesday show. When was it? No, I've lost track. When was it? December. December. God, I've lost track of time. And then, bam, Omicron hit. Uh, and the hideout shut on uh, in January. We had a show for February. It's kind of up in the air, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so the hideout is currently closed uh, at least through the middle of the month. Um, we uh, were supposed to have a February 1st show on actually how to run, how to become a judge, how to become an elected judge in Cook County with two uh, political consult- consultants who have been um, – doing this work and running candidates for a long time, uh, Wallace Gator Bradley and Mary Kay Dawson. So right for now, uh, we don't have any other updates, but just pay attention to our social media, sign up for the first Tuesdays with Maya and Ben Facebook page. If you haven't already, we'll be posting updates there. For now, the hideout is closed and they're supposed to open in time for the show. But I have a feeling that the closure might extend and we might need to push the show back. Um, They're saying that this current wave of infections is going to probably only start peaking uh, at the end of January, first week of February. So since uh, first Tuesdays in February falls right on the first, um, I feel like in in all likelihood we'll push it by a month. But Thanks for stay, staying tuned uh, to the uh, to the news about this, everybody. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I I have to admit that uh, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. Uh, I've like first Tuesdays, you got to work to get the guests, you got to work to line everything up, the promotion out. I'm always grumbling and moaning, and then I have so much fun when we do it. And the last show in December was a blast. Uh, and so now it could be another <laughs> three months, uh, three months layoff, but that's just the reality of, um, life with COVID. So we're not experiencing anything, but anybody else has, but I really hope I, my hunch is that February show will be canceled, but my hope is that, uh, we'll bring it back in March. And those are two great guests that, uh, Maya lined up for that show. So folks, I will keep, um, everybody up to date on it. It's a lot, very, enjoy, very smart group of people that gathers in that hideout, Maya. And the questions are awesome. So a lot of love for the hideout folks, uh, Tim and Katie over there. Um, all right. You wrote a story and I will now hold on very dutifully read the headline and let, let you take it away. Um, you had a very funny uh, bit in this story. Where did I find it? Hold on. I'll find it out. Your uh, tweet was funny because I know what it's like to write uh, stories that are a little complicated 
and you said, this is what you wrote. Some interesting news uh, out of Springfield. Starting in 2024, Cook County's judicial sub-circuits will be redrawn and increased from 15 to 20. And this would cost the Democratic Party millions. Here's why this matters. And then you <laughs> here's the part that made me laugh. Follow me down this rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I know I know what it's like, Maya, to kind of apologize to readers uh, before you introduce them to something complicated and try to assure them that it's really important that they read the story, because even though it's complicated, uh, they shouldn't understand how their system works. And in this particular system, it's the judicial system, because, folks, you get in trouble in any way. You're going before a judge. So it might help, I don't know, just in a general sense to understand how these judges came to be on the bench with the gavel, having the authority uh, to uh, over your life. So why don't you just uh, just give us the, the start of this and I'll follow you on this. You lead us through this, um, the essential point uh, in your story. Yeah. So and, and stop me at any point if you feel like I'm getting too into the weeds and I need to explain things a little clearer. So as a general rule, I feel like for people listening out there and, and anybody else who might read this story, like the, the more obscure something seems when it comes to government and politics, the more important it probably actually is. Uh, people in power tend to rely on the obscurity uh, of, of government functions and operations and rules in order to get away with a lot of stuff. So uh, whenever I see something that seems complicated and obscure, that's usually my cue that like it's important to pay attention to it. So that holds true for TIFFs and that holds true for, uh, you know, how we elect judges. So basically in Cook County, there are two ways to become an elected judge. First of all, there's judges that are elected by uh, the, the public. So about two thirds of the 400 judges we have in Cook County, and that's judges in criminal court, civil court, traffic court, you know, whatever, divorce court, all those judges, two thirds of them are elected by the public. And one third of them are, quote unquote, elected by the publicly elected judges. So those are called associate judges. The public doesn't get a say in who gets to be an associate judge. That's its own obscure, very political process that we're not going to get into now. But as for the two thirds of the judges that the public actually elects, there are two ways to become one of those judges. Uh, when a sitting judge retires or dies or gets kicked off the bench for whatever reason, uh, that creates a vacancy and the vacancy is either for uh, the, the seat is either elected by mem by voters in the entire county, uh, a countywide vacancy, basically. So anybody voting in Cook County would see this vacancy on their ballot and get a chance to vote for this judicial candidate uh, or the vacancy can be in a sub circuit. So uh, the entire county is divided into 15 sub-circuits, um, which are little, essentially like little political districts. If you think about like a ward or a congressional district or whatever, judicial sub-circuits are a political district just for the court system. And in order, so, when, so if a retiring or vacating judge was uh, their seat was assigned to a subcircuit. That means that to fill that seat, candidates have to run from that subcircuit. So let's say, uh, uh, you know, you're, you, you, I don't know, you're a broad, you're like the subcircuit seat is in Bronzeville. You have to be a resident of Bronzeville 
to run in that sub-circuit. I believe, uh, I, I think it's like the eighth sub-circuit currently or the fifth sub-circuit. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, so only voter, it takes only like 660 petition signatures to get on the ballot for a sub-circuit judicial seat. Uh, only voters in that sub-circuit will see that name on on their, uh, you know, on their ballot when they go to vote. And once the judges are elected, whether they're elected from a sub-circuit or they're elected from a county-wide seat, it doesn't matter at all for what kind of duties are going to have in the court system. So just because a judge is elected from your home in the sub-circuit that you live in doesn't mean that that judge is going to be assigned to see cases in that uh, in, in your area of the county. It doesn't have any relationship at all to what kind of assignment they have. All new judges get put in traffic court first. Usually they get like low level um, kind of like, you know, traffic court marriages, they do that kind of stuff first and then sort of work their way up to more, um, you know, complicated or prestigious assignments. So just when somebody first gets on the bench, they are not going to be overseeing, you know, (laughs) felony, like murder trials at 26 in California. It takes a while for a judge to, to get those uh, higher level assignments. So, uh, so here's why this is important. So the sub-circuits uh, were first drawn back in 1991 when uh, there were a lot of complaints uh, by Republicans, by uh, African-American communities, by uh, uh, Latinx neighborhoods, basically saying, like, we can't get any judges elected because all the seats used to be basically countywide seats, Chicago seats, or uh, suburban Cook seats. And the Democratic Party just totally dominated elections in all of those uh, races. So in a concession to all these, you know, complaints from all these different corners, uh, in 91, the state legislature drew up these 15 sub-circuits, split up the county to have four black sub-circuits, two Hispanic sub-circuits, and the rest of them basically being white sub-circuits um, to represent a white population. Um, and it did lead to, like, more judges, more a, a more diverse judiciary. So even, like, for example, Tim Evans, chief judge of the Circuit Court of Cook County, the way he got on the bench originally was by running in, I believe, the fifth sub-circuit back in the early 90s when they were, you know, back in the 90s when they were first put into place. That's how he became a judge in the, to, in the beginning. And here's the other thing uh, that's important about the sub-circuits is – it is a gateway to the bench that after somebody's elected for the first time, most likely they're just going to be in there forever until they're good and ready to retire until, you know, or if they really mess up and they're, you know, taken off the bench or they die uh, because here's what happens once you get elected. So again, this is whether you're from a sub circuit or you're a countywide uh, judge You get elected, you have a six-year term. At the end of the six-year term, you don't go back to your sub-circuit to have your neighbors, you know, and your family and whoever else lives in that sub-circuit re-elect you. Instead, you appear on a county-wide judicial retention ballot. And if you think about voting in November, that's that part of the ballot at the end of your November ballot where it's just name after name after name. You have no idea who these people are. And all you're asked to do as a voter is to say yes or no about keeping that person on the bench. And the astonishing thing about this is that 
in a in a very unusual rule for like democracy in this county, you actually have to have sixty percent yes vote in order to stay on the bench as a judge. But nevertheless, it is nearly unheard of for any judge not to be retained in Cook County. That's how we have judges that have been there since the eighties, you know, since the early nineties, who have been on the bench and who every six years they just keep getting retained and keep getting retained and keep getting retained because most voters they, you know, they, a lot of people don't even fill out that part of the ballot. Uh, when, by the time they get there, they just leave it blank. And then most people, if they do fill it out, they'll just vote yes on everybody. Why? Because the only message we get about those elections is that we need to vote yes on all of them. The Democratic Party goes around and has one clear election day message when it comes to judges. Vote yes on all of them. <laughs> So are you with me so far? Yeah, so far. But there was a judge and uh, the name has slipped my mind that the Dems said vote no. And I can't remember it. Matthew Coughlin. Uh, this was last election cycle. This is actually in large part because of like very important reporting that was being done at Injustice Watch. There were a lot of community groups that mobilized to kind of bring to the attention of the party bigwigs that this guy is it wasn't okay for this guy to keep being on the bench and so yeah for like probably the first time ever there were robocalls from tony prickwinkle saying vote yes on everybody except for matthew coughlin <laughs> as if that is the only person who needed any you know who deserved any scrutiny on the november ballot I can't so, remember. Did was he voted out? I cannot remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was not retained. And okay, and there was also a couple of other judges who um, drew like some grassroots opposition, and there were attempts made to not, not get them retained. But Coughlin was the only one who didn't um, who didn't get retained, as far as I remember. This was actually a couple of election cycles ago. But so back to this law that got passed in Springfield last week. Here's why this is important. So, like I said, in 91, they, they drew these judicial subcircuits for Cook County, but that original law did not have any provision for redistricting. So the subcircuit boundaries actually hadn't changed in like 30 plus years, yeah. which led to, uh, because of population shifts in the county and stuff, like, for example, remember I said that there were two, uh, like there were two subcircuits that were drawn that were supposed to be Latino subcircuits originally, well, the population had changed so much that like one of them was a white subcircuit now because of gentrification in the Logan Square, Humboldt Park area. So um, the map uh, last year, the, the, there was a law passed that legislatures had to redraw the subcircuits now. It took longer than they expected to get the census data. And uh, between all the other redistricting that was happening, the subcircuit stuff kind of got you know, brushed aside and the deadline for it was extended and they were soliciting community input on how to redraw this map in Cook County. Uh, last fall, people were proposing various different things that could be done. Um, the the subcircuits also had like very different populations, like, hu like huge, over 100,000 people difference between some of them. So anyway, uh, much to the surprise of everybody who was paying attention to this, suddenly last week, on the first full day of the legislative session, uh, you get this introduction of this proposed new map that divided up Cook County into 20 subcircuits instead of 15, added subcircuits to downstate judicial circuits that didn't have them before. Um, and, you know, hours later on January 5th, uh, this gets voted through by the Democratic supermajority in the Senate and the House, and suddenly it's a law, and J.B. Prisker signs it on Friday, and that's it. 
And so, so uh, the the new map for Cook County uh, does fix some of these issues uh, of like having an imbalanced population. It it creates four new uh, Latino majority majority subcircuits. There are five Black majority subcircuits. There are four subcircuits where um, Asians are the biggest uh, non-white ethnic group. Um, there were a lot of concerns expressed to the legislators uh, like last December when they were soliciting feedback from various Asian American and uh, uh, AAPI groups that like, you know, our communities are getting split up in these subcircuits. We can't elect, you know, we can't get judges elected that represent our community. So uh, the map gets changed. All of, you know, the, it seems to solve a lot of the problems that had been created by this old map and having not been redistricted for 30 years. And, uh, you know, running in a judicial subcircuit when when there's a vacancy that comes up in the subcircuit is a lot cheaper and easier than if you want to be a countywide candidate. So remember, like uh, back in December, I came on to talk to you about the Democratic Party slating for mm-hmm. for, for judges. So when they slate, they only endorse and slate candidates for countywide judicial vacancies. So, um you know, they don't, the, the party as an entity doesn't get involved in sub-circuit elections. Uh, but for the countywide judicial races, just like with everybody else that they endorse, the party asks people to kick in $40,000 to pay for their election year campaign activities, to pay for their lawyers, to pay for everything they need for that election cycle. So uh, so basically, the he, here's the kicker with this new law. Uh the way so they create 15 they, they create 20 subcircuits instead of 15 but they don't create any judicial any new judicial positions so essentially the question is well like how are these five new subcircuits going to be filled with judges each of them is supposed to have 11 judges how are we gonna how are we gonna fill them up and so what the law that was passed currently says is that the next 55 mm. countywide judicial vacancies that come up for countywide seats will be reapportioned between the five new subcircuits, which at the rate that countywide judicial vacancies come up, it's usually like eight to 12 each election cycle. Uh, that would spell like over a decade of election cycles where there would be no countywide judicial vacancies for the Democratic Party to run candidates in and collect $40,000 each from. <laughs> and because of how many candidates they slate every yeah. cycle, that pays for like half of their campaign cycle. Judicial races are the cheapest and easiest ones for the party to run, but yeah. judicial candidates bring in half or more of of each election cycle budget for for the Democratic Party. So as it's written, the law would cost the Democratic Party a lot of money and a lot of influence. And uh, when I spoke with Jacob Kaplan last week, he said that currently there are no plans to start endorsing candidates and collecting money from sub-circuit candidates. Which, you know, as as I mentioned, you know, you you need way fewer petition signatures to get on the sub-circuit ballot you know, just 667, If you even if you're going to double that, you know, you can basically go around, convince your neighbors to sign your petitions and get enough people out to vote to, to get yourself elected to judge, which is then, you know, a six-figure salary and indefinite tenure. So I think this is good news for uh, independent candidates, 
uh, grassroots candidates for judge. You could get a, obviously people from a, a, a way wider diversity of, of um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, but this is very bad news for the Democratic Party. And all yeah. by all accounts, this part of the law is going to be changed. They, so, you know, they're not going to let go of their even <laughs> Nobody would tell me. (laughs) Nobody would tell me how they will fill these judicial seats if not in the way the law says. If they're not going to add new judicial seats either, so stay tuned for that news. You know, when they say when they change the law, I'll 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 have an update for you. But um, yeah, if they don't change it, this is this is this is going to be this is going to be huge. The only thing I see happening is that like they will have to pivot their strategy, start endorsing people at sub-circuits and collecting money from those candidates. Uh, all right. Uh, Peter Cunningham has joined us. Peter Cunningham has joined us. Always good to see him. But uh, my, I have to say this. Uh, I'm all over the map on this position. Uh, and I, gotta, I must confess, uh, on the one hand, uh, <laughs> I think it's utterly insane the way we, uh, you, to be a judge, you have to kick in 40 grand to the Democratic yeah, Party. For countywide, for countywide. Yeah, for countywide, for countywide, yeah. Well, fig- might, you know- they, yeah, they'll figure out a way to get the sub-circuit. Uh, they'll, get a, that's, they'll figure out a way to uh, get some kind of appropriate amount of money to kick back uh, on the sub-circuit. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, the Democratic Party uh, is well. I, I shouldn't even say this. Generally, I view the statewide issues that the general. It's like a battle between MAGA and the Democrats. So I'm uh, on the side of the Democrats. I, I <laughs> as much as I like Jacob Kaplan, he's a good friend of the show. I I don't know. I'm not sobbing for uh, the Democratic Party. They're losing forty grand. Uh, the Cook County Democratic Party. And really, my reality is when I think about it, this the Democratic Party sway is strongest with judges. Think about it. I, any other candidate, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I watched the, the, the battle over whether they would endorse Alexi uh, uh, Janulius for, um, mm-hmm. uh, for St- Secretary of State and the anguish over that and uh, the whole notion of loyalty tests. So there is some important symbolic value to the Cook County Democratic Party still. But it's make or break with judges. You know that as well as I do. And I can't think of any other position where it is. Go ahead. No, it really, because because these are such low profile races, yeah. having the parties, like most people don't aren't aware at all uh, around who's running for a countywide judicial vacancy. There's also like pretty strict rules about how judges are allowed to campaign. So the party, go, like passing out leaflets, running ads, all of that stuff on behalf of judicial candidates to say like vote for these people, you know, their candidates, their like slated candidates don't always win, but it really, really helped for sure. And uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people are, I think, like pretty disgusted by the fact that, you know, people running for judge are like so o- openly embracing an affiliation with a political party, signing the loyalty pledge. I mean, a lot of these people are like deep, deep party insiders. I mean, a lot of these people are not necessarily uh, have not necessarily done much with their careers except for work for Democratic Party elected officials their entire lives. So it's, you know, especially for the countywide seats, I think a lot of people see those elections as being like a lot of cronyism and just like, 
you know, people, people getting rewarded by the party for their loyalty, which is part of the reason why some circuit races are actually also good because since the party doesn't really throw its weight around in the sub circuit, the local committee man might, um, you know, the, 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 the party officials that live within a certain sub circuit will make endorsements there. But still, relatively speaking, like there, it's a lot more democratic, like a, a lot of different kind of people that don't have a lot of pull in the party have a chance at those sub-circuit seats. And like I said, there's 11 in every sub-circuit. So, you know, they every every election cycle, there's there'll be a bunch that'll come up and um, a lot more folks have a chance to, to win those, even if they don't have a ton of money um, or a ton of pull. But yeah, it's I do think that um, if... If not, if the law doesn't change and if the party's going to lose this money, one does have to wonder if they rely so heavily on contributions from these candidates for their entire election cycle yeah. to get Alexei Janulius elected statewide. You know, they're they need that money like to to get, you know, they, they use it for the governor races, every, everything, basically. Um, you know, would they become more vulnerable to Republican opponents? Yeah. If they well, lost that I, I don't think in this particular cycle uh, they have to worry about the governor's race because oh, none of this goes into effect until 2024, by the way. Yes. Yeah. In 2024 anyway. Uh, but anyway, just and uh, Janulius has been able to raise a lot of money. I'm just going to give a shout out uh, to uh, Cook County judges. I'm going to put this out there uh, as cynical and jaded as I usually am. And Peter Cunningham is going to get a kick out of this. What I'm about to say uh, it was, in my humble opinion, a Cook County judge. Uh, who is the reason, one of the reasons, one of the, the main reasons uh, that Lori Lightfoot is our mayor right now. And that would be uh, Franklin Balderrama, the judge who ruled against the city of Chicago on the FOIA case regarding the Laquan McDonald video. Had he not ruled uh, that the city had to turn that over, had he not sided uh, with the freelance journalist who was petitioning uh, to have that video turned over, we would not have seen what was on that tape. Uh, and just think about uh, how history has been changed, Amaya, because because of that ruling, because that guy had the guts to rule against Mayor Rahm Emanuel on that matter, um, we ended up with a situation where Rahm obviously felt he couldn't, for whatever reason, uh, it was too risky for him to run for re-election, and for better or worse, Lori Lightfoot is our mayor. So, it's a way of underscoring the importance of independent thought on uh, the Cook County bench, right? And... Um, uh, how important these uh, judges are. All right, Maya, um, I'm going to bring on Peter P.C. Cunningham. You're more than welcome to stay around. Uh, you guys are old friends from past hideout shows. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, criminal justice issues. Peter, are you there? I am. I'm oh, here. there you go. There you go. You took your, oh, there you go. There's young Peter Cunningham. Uh, and uh, welcome back, Cotter. I don't know if you heard any of that. Amaya uh, was talking about the article she just wrote for Injustice Watch about the changes, the complicated, convoluted changes that uh, govern and dictate uh, how judges are elected uh, in Cook County and statewide, uh, Peter. And uh, we began by telling people, you know, this stuff is complicated. This stuff's uh, convoluted, but if you want to understand how democracy works uh, in Cook County, sometimes you have to take the deep dive. You do I know you look under the hood. And, uh, yes. No one does it better than Maya. Wow. How about that for a ringing endorsement? I thought you were going to say no one does it better than Ben. Man, I already got thrown out under the bus, Maya. Now, Maya actually like <laughs> looks up facts and things. She doesn't just spew opinions. I mean, I love your opinions, but I'm just saying sometimes a few facts are helpful. 
Okay. Well, here's a fact. Uh, Peter Cunningham uh, is a frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky show. Hasn't been on in a while. Uh, and just by chance, I was going to reach out to him anyway, uh, because when Peter comes on, okay, back up. Peter, as we know, uh, is a former aide to Mayor Daley, former aide to, uh, aide to Arnie Duncan, and not on the payroll aide to Rahm Emanuel, but he's kind of like the brains behind Rahm Emanuel. I always say if you ever saw anything remotely intelligent uh, written under uh, the Rahm Emanuel or Mayor Daley byline, uh, most likely Peter Cunningham wrote it. Uh, just to be clear, I don't write in Japanese, okay? So. <laughs> okay. Rahm Emanuel, now ambassador. To uh, Japan, the U.S. Senate decided it was a good idea to send this guy over there. Uh, we'll avoid that conversation for the moment. Uh, want to talk to you. We really wanted to talk to you about criminal justice issues. Uh, but Arnie Duncan, your uh, old friend and uh, former boss, is emerging as a political candidate. So let's get that question out of the way up front. Is Arnie Duncan going to run for mayor of the city of Chicago uh, in 2023 against Lori Lightfoot? Well, he hasn't announced anything yet, and um, but he did um, uh, uh, publicly say that he's looking at it, um, and looking at it is something that's going to take a you know a little time. He's going to call folks. He's going to um, you know look at issues beyond the one that he is working on right now. Um, he's obviously he's got a big background in education, knows a lot about that subject. He's got a big background now in crime, having spent the last five years running a violence prevention organization. But as we all know, to run for mayor, you have to you have to work on a whole lot of issues. Um, so I think he's gonna do some thinking around those issues and just talk to folks, talk to a lot of friends, talk to his family, and uh, stay tuned. But he has not announced yet that he is running. Well, he has certainly hinted that he's thinking about it. We'll put it that way. And it got the, uh, all kinds of um, articles in the Tribunes and Cranes. I get the feeling that the business community is uh, corporate Chicago would rally around uh, Arnie Duncan. That's my sense of it from reading the tea leaves, which is interesting because in some ways I can make the argument that uh, Arnie right now is the most progressive on criminal justice issues. And uh, I say this First of all, anybody who hears uh, Peter come on the show for the last two years, he's been very critical about policing tactics in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, Arnie wrote an essay, or there was an essay uh, under his byline, which I assume Peter Cunningham wrote, uh, in the Tribune, January 3rd. And this essay could have been written by my old friend, Mick Dunkey. This uh, essay was... Uh, how do you know it wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could have been written by Mick. We're going to bring you in the show. Did you uh, ghostwrite this? Yeah. Uh, and it talked about a new, the necessary, what's, we had, need a new approach uh, to uh, gun violence and crime in Chicago. And I'll read this one part. And then, um, and, and Peter, this sounds like stuff that you've been saying in the show uh, uh, for a long time. And I'll, here we go. Uh, many of today's shootings are not about drug turf. For our guys, the biggest cause of gun violence in Chicago is retaliation, and a key driver is our low arrests and conviction rates for homicides and shooting. People are getting away with killings every day in Chicago, and in the absence of real justice, we get street justice. Even mass shootings leads to a very few arrests and convictions, end of quote. And the reason why I said it sounds like something written by Mick Dumpke is that Mick, for the, uh, the reader, wrote an, an excellent article about 10 years ago 
uh, talking about re- the re- culture of retaliation in the city of Chicago. And he was talking about in terms of the culture of retaliation uh, in uh, high crime areas where people uh, settle their differences with guns. I believe there's a much wider, more pervasive re- uh, culture of retaliation that we see every day in politics, which was at play when uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot just like turned on the Chicago Teachers Union and the teachers. But we'll put that aside. That's not as dangerous to people on a day to day basis, though I do think it's pervasive. Uh, what what why don't you go a little deeper into this uh, uh peter what is the culture of retaliation in chicago and how it, how does it contribute to crime in your humble opinion yeah well it started out by making the point that a lot of people you know think it's turf and they just say oh it's gang related but the nature of the gangs has changed a lot you know we we had this we have this old notion that there's a couple you know the gangster disciples and uh you know latin kings and there's a three or four big big gangs and they're all structured kind of like the mafia where, you know, there's somebody sitting in a chair somewhere who's at the top who makes all the decisions. The truth is they're very, very splintered. There's cliques and crews. Some of them are just a handful of guys, a dozen guys on a street just trying to, you know, cover themselves. And with social media, there's an awful lot of goading and taunting. And a lot of that gets pretty toxic and can lead to shootings. And that's what's going on in, in this community. There's a, is there's a constant back and forth between folks who were shot and six months later they come back and shoot someone and, you know, they shoot someone who they think is associated with that guy or they think it's the guy or it turns out to be the guy's wife or his mom or his kids. or And as a result, we're just getting so much random violence and it's really not grounded in some economic, uh, you know, competition here. It's just, it's just a culture of retaliation. And, um, you know, Police talk about a murder clearance rate in the high 40s right now, which is still well below the national average. But if you just look at arrests, and we've looked at this closely, the arrest rate for the number of shootings we have is closer to 20%. And that varies by neighborhood. And when you actually break it down by neighborhood, and we've looked at some of these numbers, they're in single digits in some places. That, That means nine out of 10 shootings, you know, might not lead to an arrest. And if you then break it down even further and say, well, maybe the fatal ones, they have a higher arrest rate. So the average everyday non-fatal shooting just goes completely un- unaddressed. You know, and police are overwhelmed. They had too many cases to look at. There's been a lot of, a lot of um, uh, articles written about the detective division is down significantly, that the average caseload for detective is well above what's reasonable. So you just have a situation where you cannot – cannot hold people accountable for shooting. So what do we expect people to do? What they're going to do is they're going to carry a gun with them. And what happens with when you carry guns is that sometimes it escalates in ways that, you know, is unfortunate. So that's a lot of what's driving the violence. And Arnie's article made the point um, that uh, we have to get much better at arresting actual shooters um, mm. or likely shooters and not arresting everybody in the world because that just breaks down trust. You're not going to arrest these shooters unless you have the trust of the community, and you're not going to have the trust of the community if you keep on arresting the wrong people, and that's what we're doing a lot of. Um, And and in recent years, since the pandemic especially, even the arrest rate has gotten even lower and lower, you know, for for obvious reasons. You know, police are, are more reluctant to engage. You know, we've had a lot of police get sick from COVID. Uh, A number of them have died. Uh, there's something like 2,000 or 2,300 that are out sick right now. So there's just so much, so much working against us right now. 
And the net result is that nobody feels safe. And that feeling of, of you know, that feeling extends into every neighborhood now. You know, you're, 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 it's, not, it's not just the south and west sides of Chicago. It's everywhere. Um, by the way, Maya is still with us. Maya, anytime you want to jump in, ask questions, make comments, you feel free to do so. Uh, I know you have a lot of opinions and thoughts on this. Uh, the other part of the uh, story that, uh, or the essay that uh, Arnie wrote for the Tribune, and really gets, uh, I couldn't believe I was reading this by Arnie Duncan, because this does sound like McDumkey. And I'm going to give another shout out to my old friend, McDumkey. Uh, he wrote articles about, he was critical of Mayor Daley's uh, obsession with uh, sweeping up illegal guns in Chicago. And it was at this press conference, Peter, you may remember this. My, I'm not sure you were in Chicago when this happened, uh, where Mayor Daley was having a press conference to unveil all the weaponry that the police had gathered. Yeah, you hadn't been there. Okay. Uh, all the weaponry that the police had gathered over one weekend, I think it was, or a week, just to show how, many, how much uh, guns there were out there in Chicago. And, and there was this musket. Somehow or other, it was like this old musket that they had. <laughs> and um, and Mick Dumkey, uh raised the question uh like have you ever established a correlation between gathering uh, all this weaponry and reducing crime and mayor Dave was so mad at the question uh and that and the implication that uh his gun policies were uh, misguided that he took the musket and threatened to stick it up mix butt and shoot him uh, and he later apologized for it but uh made headlines mayor threatens uh reporter so imagine my su- surprise when I read this following passage, Peter, uh, in the Tribune, written by Arnie Duncan, who at the time was Mayor Daley's uh, Board of Ed CEO. Uh, there is a profound lack of understanding among leadership about everyday life in our high crime communities. For example, Chicago confiscates more guns than any other city in America, yet there is little correlation between the number of guns confiscated and the number of homicides. In 2015, the city collected almost 6,800 guns and had fewer than 500 homicides. The following year, it collected 8,400 guns and had 770 homicides. In 2020, Chicago collected more than 11,000 guns and still had about 770 homicides. Last year, it collected over 12,000 guns and had 800 homicides. The problem is that most people arrested in gun charges are not likely shooters. Chicago police are arresting people who are simply scared for their lives. They carry guns to go to the store, visit their moms, pick up the kids at school, or go to work before because they don't feel safe, even men with a record. Elaborate a little bit on that, Peter. Um, the point. Well, he's making. you know, um, the the uh, the city does like to show off and brag about how many guns it collects. And to be absolutely clear, um, Arnie and me, but you know, Arnie is a hundred percent for removing illegal guns from the street. He 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 is anti-gun. He has been out there a million times with every town and with all the anti-gun groups. He's called for tougher gun laws. He thinks that America's gun culture is fundamentally um, uh, destructive and sick. But um, but we just want the public to know the truth. And the truth is that for all the guns we collect, it is not meaningful. It, it does not appear to be um, reducing shootings and reducing homicides. We had 4,400 shootings last year. It was up from the year before, and we collected 12,000 guns, more than any other city in America. You know, the, the bottom line is that 
these guys are terrified. They feel unsafe, so they're carrying guns. And the bottom line is that the gun industry makes it as easy as possible for them to go get another one as soon as they, as soon as the gun is confiscated. Uh, yeah, the missing, I'm sorry. The missing piece in this conversation is always that I don't think people have an idea of how many guns are out there on the streets. Uh, Stephanie Coleman at Northwestern uh, Bloom Legal Clinic does research on this. And I think the last I heard her say is there was something like 500,000 guns in Chicago. So taking 8,000 guns off the street, taking 8,000 guns off the street, it's not even not correlated to the people who may be shooting. It's also just that it's like a drop in the bucket in terms of available guns. Yeah, I have not heard that statistic, but I have no problem believing it. The general number that I've heard is that there's, you know, 300, 400 million guns in America. So that's more than one per person in a place like Chicago with 2.7 million people. 500,000 guns is probably true, maybe even low for all I know. But in these communities, getting an illegal gun is easy. Everybody we talk to who works in the Chicago CRED program tells us that, you know, the first time they had a gun was when they were about 12, maybe 14 um, you know, they, and they saw them, they saw their elders with guns, they saw their older brothers with guns, they saw their friends with guns, and eventually they themselves got a gun. So I, 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 it's one of these situations, Ben, where we're not against the policy, but we're just trying to let the public know that it's not necessarily making them safer. And so, you know, standing up and taking credit for it, okay, fair enough, but... You know, we still had 800 uh, homicides. We had 4,400 shootings last year. So it's not it's not really making a difference. All right. So to deal with uh, the high number of shootings in the city of Chicago, uh, if the emphasis should not be on just collecting guns, what should the emphasis be on, in your humble opinion? So what he argues in the piece is that we really, really need to figure out how police can devote more of their time to dealing with violent crime. So there's been lots of articles about how police spend their time. Um, they do a lot of things. They answer every call in, in the, in the book. They, uh, um, they deal with homelessness. They deal with mental health stuff. They deal with noise complaints. They deal with traffic stuff. They deal with all kinds of things besides violent crime. And, um, you know, if you look at the numbers in the department, uh, they are way, way, way down. I mean, let me just give you a little math here for a second. So a couple of years ago, there are, I think, 13,500 or 600 positions. One of the mayor's budgets cut positions by 600. Uh, another 1,000 positions have been left vacant. Um, in the last four years, uh, over 2,300 police have retired. In the last year alone, 900 retired. That's compared to 330 four years earlier. So retirements are through the roof. We can't possibly replace them fast enough. Applications were down considerably. I read recently that maybe they're up again, but you know, it's hard to say that if they're getting the kind of qualified applicants they want or the kind of diverse applicants they want and need. Um, And now you add the fact that they took a lot of police from the um, districts and put them in these citywide units. I think they're starting to reverse that right now, but that's something that's happened in the last two years. And then you add the fact that, as I mentioned before, we got a couple of thousand police who are sick, and you're down to six, seven, eight thousand people who are in a position to maybe go out. And most, you know, a lot of them are playing clothes. They're detectives. They're people working behind desks. So, how many police do we actually have on the street 
trying to A, build relationships and build trust, and B, focus on finding shooters, you know, let alone creating a police presence. I think we have a department, a $1.9 billion agency, that's just not being, you know, uh, uh, not being deployed in, in a way that focuses on violent crime, that creates a police presence, and that builds trust with the community. You know, take community policing now. I, I was with Mayor Daly 25 years ago when we announced community policing in Chicago, 28 years ago, I think 1993, okay? And that effort, um, you know, it started, it went for a while, but it didn't, we, you know, we didn't stay with it for whatever reason, different people came along. I wasn't with them after a couple of years, but I'm not saying that that has anything to do with why it didn't work. I'm just saying that's a fact. And so now they have some pilot programs on community policing, a couple of districts, five or six, I think now at the moment, and a couple of officers in each district. That's not community policing. Community policing is when everybody in the whole department believes that their job is not to maximize the number of arrests, but to build relationships, to build trust, to actually go out there and work with people and make, make, make the neighborhoods safer. I'd love to see that, and I know that Arnie would love to see that, really infused in the department in a systematic way. But, 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 but to answer your question, what should we do? Get the police really, really focused on violent crime, and then at the same time, take the kind of programs that Arnie has developed and other organizations like Ready Chicago and Communities Partnering for Peace, and take them to scale. I mean, we think we're reaching maybe 10% of these guys. We get them to put down the guns. We get them into a job. We train them. We give them therapy so that they can develop coping skills, you know, as they deal with stress. We, um, we have a bunch of them go back to school. And we think that you got to give these guys a path. I mean, a lot of them have criminal records. They can't get a job. They're hungry. They have families. They have to pay rent. What are they, they going to do? Unless we as a society begin to approach that whole side of the, side of the problem, uh, side of the issue, with, you know, real understanding, we're not going to solve this. You know, they, they're going to they have no choice to, but to operate in the illegal economy if they don't have a place in the legal economy. Uh, this is a message that Peter has been delivering on the show for two years. Uh, and so listening to it to come it's out of our getting there, isn't it? What's that? It's obviously getting through, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think this is the point I was going to make. Uh, at least there's a well-known candidate right now. And I just got to point, I've, again, I'll start, I was not, not, uh, Kind Arnie Duncan, when he was the head of uh, Chicago Public Schools, I wrote many critical columns about him. Uh, but at least there's a candidate who's put his name out there, and it's linked to this. Maybe candidate potential. and uh, potential candidate. Thank you. Good. That's why he's the wordsmith. Um, and so, Peter, I'm leading to this. As soon as Arnie put these ideas out there, he wrote the essay. He gave a speech at one of the uh, civic clubs. I can't remember which one. Uh, uh, Mayor Lightfoot slammed him. It was in an article in the Chicago Sun-Times written by Fran Spielman. Slammed him. Said, this sounds like defund the police. Yeah. I, I'm like, I just had to shake my head because suddenly defund the police has become a uh, buzzword that uh, Democrats use now uh, in uh, city elections, like Eric Adams in New York and now Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. Uh, it's an old law and order cry. 
And so a guy who talks about a different approach to policing is boom, right off the bat slammed as being weak on crime. Yeah. And I could, I'm just like shaking my head going, nothing changes in the city of Chicago. So how can, not to put Arnie aside, how can, you, you've been a political consultant to many candidates. How can any politician deal with the rhetorical, rhetorical counterpunch of you're just a defund the policer. You're just weak on crime. You're just a wimpy liberal. Go ahead. I mean, in this case, you can look at the facts. I mean, the fact is she cut 600 positions. The fact is another thousand have gone unfilled. So, you know, that's 1600 positions right there. Um, uh, so if, if, you know, if, if that's where she wants to talk, then, you know, she should really talk about that. But I think that, um, what Arnie's really called for, and what I, I believe as well, is that we need to rethink policing. You know, it, as I said, we we have, you know, eleven or 12,000 police. A whole lot of them are sick. A whole lot of them, some of them are probably in desk jobs. A whole lot of them are in these citywide units. And between all of them, we have fewer and fewer guys out on the beat actually patrolling, creating a police presence, building relationships, and really focusing on violent crime. Um uh, and you know that's not the rank and file police officer's fault. It's 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 the leadership. This is this is how we've decided to use police. And if it was working, we'd ha- be having a different conversation. You know, it's clearly not working. Not in the last two years, anyway. Uh, and truthfully, we haven't had under 400 homicides in Chicago since 1965. 1965. That's you know 56 years of uh, you know a, a, a homicide rate that is you know shameful and. Um, just, you know, indefensible, uh, unacceptable. Um, you know, we've gone higher. You know, New York has gone way above us. They're now well below us. Los Angeles is well below us. Los Angeles has fewer police than Chicago. They have a million and a half more people. They have a lot more civilians in their police department, and they have a lot less homicide, a lot fewer homicides. There's something to learn from, from Los Angeles that we should look at. Um, New York, of course, has... Three times as many people on a per capita basis. They have around the same size as we do in terms of police, but they've done a lot of things differently than we have. And so, you know, this this is costing us so much as a city, you know. And, and again, I don't want to, you know, I really try not to depoliticize. I try to depoliticize the conversation. This is a, you know, the, for the work that Arnie's been doing for the last five years has had nothing to do with politics. It's about saving lives and saving the city. Um, you know, our reputation is shattered. You know, this is all people talk about. And, um, you know, uh, we're spending an enormous amount of money on criminal justice and we're spending an enormous amount of money. We're losing an enormous amount of money in terms of investment in these communities, you know? So, so I talked about investing in violence prevention. I talking about making police much more effective at actually stopping violent crime. But the other piece of it is to do much more to rebuild these communities. And again, you know, always sounds like more and more money. But uh, most of these communities, and you know it very well, have suffered since the 68 riots. You know, you go out to the west side of Chicago and you'll see areas of that, of that uh, you know, once thriving business strips that still haven't recovered. And that's that's unacceptable. And and, you know, either we focus on it and, 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 and you know, I, I want to say that, you know, the concerns now go far beyond the south and west side. You know, they always did. 
but they're really escalated in recent years. You know, you're seeing the, you know, the smash and grab stuff down, st- downtown in the retail areas. You're seeing carjackings all over the city. You're seeing shootings everywhere. And we have more information than ever before. You go to Block Club Chicago, you can find out everything that happens in every little neighborhood. So, so you know, this is, on a, this is a front burner issue. And this is an opportunity, really, for us to truly rethink what public safety means and how to achieve it. And anyone who thinks it's just more police, more police, more police, you know, is is just not thinking, you know, uh, uh, through the issue. Because if more police was the answer, we'd have the safest city in America. On a per capita basis, we have one of the biggest police forces in America. But in fact, you know, we don't have one of the safest. So, so just think, think about what you said uh, in the course of. Uh, your last riff, uh, the number of police uh, retirements are up. They can't possibly fill them at the same time. Maybe we had, that's not even the issue. That's maybe not the key issue. It's not the total number of police on the force as to how they're employed and uh, what they're doing with their time and how the other things that they do with their time could be filled by non-police employees. Uh, and yet if you're running a campaign and you're worried about Lori Lightfoot coming at you as weak in crime, you're going to hit him with the number of police are falling. You should feel unsafe. Uh, it's all part of <laughs> the retaliatory culture of Chicago politics where they use verbally what many people yeah. take I mean, out with guns. You know, Go ahead. To be really, you know, I mean, this isn't about having just fewer police for the sake of it. It's about making the best use of the police we have, okay? And and realistically, it sounds great for somebody to run a campaign, say, I want more police. Well, you know, they're retiring twice as fast as we can replace them. So, yes, we should replace many of the police that are retiring, okay? But the truth is we're not going to be able to meet those numbers. We've had 1,000-plus vacancies for, you know, I don't know how many years, at least for one and maybe probably for three. Um, you know, uh, we closed police positions under this administration. So, you know, how do we make a better use of the police we have? How do we focus on officer wellness? Suicides are up. Okay. Um, you know, substance abuse and domestic abuse is a rising problem. Over 2000 of them are out sick right now. So we're, we're like, you know, we're like at half strength here. And again, the, the ones we have are not, fully integrated into a community policing model where you're building trust, where you're building relationships and where you're present in the community. And so, you know, Arnie believes and I believe as well, you need police, you need police, especially for violent crime. I'm not sure we need more police to, you know, deal with mental health issues. I'd rather we use social workers and counselors for mental health issues. I'd rather we use social workers for homeless people. I'd rather we use outreach workers for youth, youth crime. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, I'd rather we worked a lot harder to give these kids safe activities to do instead of just set, calling the police and expecting them to solve it because a couple of kids are out playing basketball late at night. The ball is bouncing, you know. In my neighborhood, in my old neighborhood, the kids were out playing basketball at night. So the, you know what they did? They took down the basketball. <laughs> they got rid of them at the park district. So there's no basketball, <laughs> not even during the day. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, what are you expecting to do now? <laughs> well, so, it- yeah, I, I just think we have to ask those kinds of questions. What are we what are we offering our young people so that they're they're not being, you know, turning to the streets for, you know, because the pipeline of young kids coming into gangs hasn't stopped at all. Yeah. I uh, I hear just, you. Uh, it is so much rethinking here. 
And, you know, I understand in the midst of politics, there's going to be, you know, silly lines like, oh, that's defunding or, oh, hire, hire a thousand more cops. Well, it's not easy to do. You can't do that right away. That's not going to happen overnight. It may not happen at all, given the rate at which they're retiring. So how about we do a better job with the ones we have? How about we focus on root causes? How about we invest in violence prevention? How about we give young people more opportunities? And how about we, the ones we have, focus a lot more on building relationships and really following through to hold accountable the people who are really terrorizing our neighborhoods. All right, you made you made a mention uh, a couple times in passing about the number of police uh, who've been out sick with COVID, and I wrote it down. I have to bring it up because I think it's directly tied uh, to the impasse that uh, uh, lasted for about a week between uh, Chicago Public Schools, uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, and the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, Stacey Davis Gates, who will be on the show tomorrow, and um, I. I would be reading the articles in the in the newspaper and the Sun Times that would talk about the high number of police uh, who are out and how uh, the the mayor are uh, ordered all day off, canceled because there wasn't enough police to patrol. And then, in the same breath, the health commissioner. I, I, I can't even get this out. The health commissioner is saying that Omicron is no worse than the flu and it's not a serious threat. So shut up and go back to the classroom. And Peter, I've just never seen such a greater disconnect. I've been covering Chicago for a long time, shaking my head and r- railing <laughs> at the sky <laughs> like some King Lear character. But truly, the disconnect and the mixed message that has been present for the last couple of weeks is it's just astounding. Yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> Listen, you know, um, as you know, I'm a Democrat and Democrats always try to do the really hard things in my opinion, whereas um, the other guys often default to what I think are the easy path out. So on this issue, to me, the, the, the hard thing, and yet the goal we should share is help kids learn and keep everybody safe. Okay. Like we should have those as two goals, help kids learn, keep the learning happening, keep everybody safe. We know that learning really, really suffered when it was full remote. Okay. But we also knew that we couldn't keep kids, people safe back when the pandemic first began. We just knew it. You know, there really wasn't the kind of debate we had. So here we are a year and a half later, a whole lot of people have asked. Uh, We know an awful lot about more, an awful lot more about it. We know about Omicron. We know what the consequences are, especially for people who are vaxxed. They're not as severe as, as as, as they were for people who were unvaxxed. So the, we, we just have a lot more information, and we also know that kids have really, really suffered for two years now. So given those two things, you know, can we meet both of those goals, or do we just have to go with one of them? We have to say, you know what, risk is too high, that's it, close it down until the risk is below some arbitrary level that we all agree on. Like from the beginning, I was saying it should be school by school, okay? If you have a school with 50% infection rates, of course you should close it down. If you school with 5% infection rates, should you close it down? I don't think so. And I don't think anyone thinks so. So I've, I believe that it should have been school by school from the beginning. And what I really believe is that, you know, there should have been sort of a, a shared commitment around goals to start the conversation. And I don't think that there was. Well, there should have very least been masks in every school. And this is the part. Agreed. There should be masks. There should be testing. I mean, and... 
I, I just find it appalling that we venture forth uh, into a conversation about what the metrics are before we close the school uh, and what we can tolerate in terms of the number of teachers who have COVID and can't uh, show up to school when we aren't doing the absolute basic, most fundamental things that you have to do to protect the teachers, the parents, the, the security guards, et cetera, and so forth. And so Mayor Lori Lightfoot should be roundly criticized for allowing the schools to be so vulnerable during the surge. And instead she, she very cleverly turns it into a war with the teachers union, which she's vilifying them for saying they want to shut down the schools again. I'm like, that's just a political rhetoric that you threw out there. No, but the Chicago Teachers Union wasn't advocating shutting down the schools. On a, they, they wanted metrics, and they also wanted some basic necessities. I thought they wanted the, all the schools closed. They wanted all the schools closed remotely uh, and go back to remote learning after, 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 like how much, how many weeks where we didn't have masks, where there's no testing program in the city. You don't even, like in Evanston, I called up or I found out what they do. They have people at the door taking temperatures. Can you imagine that in the city of Chicago? City of Chicago couldn't pull that one off, Peter, in a million years. They can't even get a mask in a public school. I don't know why. I don't know why. It doesn't seem to me that hard. <laughs> I, I'm so, with you. So, so I, I I hear you. It's I, I, I'll be honest. I haven't followed the, the everyday blip in the conversation. All I know is that uh, it seemed to escalate and it seemed to turn on issues that seemed to be eminently solvable. It's like you say, masking, testing, vaccines, and uh, masking, texting vaccines, and even some... You know, and closing in extreme situations, school by school. It, it, All right, let me ask you this. But, I mean, I, I wasn't at the table. I wasn't involved, and I wasn't following every single day. I'm, I'm glad they're back in school. I'm, uh, well, I, I'm, I can't say that. I'm mm -hmm. not glad they're back at school if it's unsafe conditions. I'd, as a principal, I'm with you 100%. Kids are better off in a classroom. But we don't know it's unsafe teacher. right now, do we? Do we know that it's unsafe? I, I, do, if, if, I would oh, say yeah. it's unsafe if you don't have a ready supply of masks in the school. Now, what I do not know, okay. all I know is that Pedro Martinez, who's the, CP, the CEO of CPS, told the teachers, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. In the middle of negotiations, as right before school year began, uh, this current uh, January 3rd school year. He said, I'll tell you what, if you agree to go back, I'll make sure the masks get delivered. I'm like, what? Why is delivering masks a collective bargaining negotiating thing? I, I would have thought you would have done that on your own. <laughs> Why do you need the teachers forcing you in negotiation? I'll say this about Mayor Daly. I never voted for the guy. Okay. In a million years. <laughs> nah, uh, I voted for him uh, when he was state's attorney against Richard Brzezak. That's my confession. I could not bring myself to vote for Richard Brzezak in 1984. But I can't imagine Mayor Daly. You know what I'm saying? He, he would be like giving out the masks. Cunningham would devise this thing where the, the cameras would all show up and Daly would be giving. <laughs> and the reporter's like, there's Mayor Daly giving out the masks. Personally. I, I, Personally, give me a, but how can you say it's good that the kids are back in school if we don't even know they have basic math? And then this cockamamie, what's your, I need to put you on the uh, hot speed seat here. Opt in or opt out on testing. Have you followed this one, Peter? Do you know what I'm talking about? So here, yeah. here's, yeah, the issue is whether to 
uh, give uh, sort of just do it. And if parents want to opt out, they can. Yeah. Mayor, and, Mayor Lori is against that, right? Her position is that it is, quote, morally repugnant. Yeah, it's got to be opt in. I, I, I think I disagree with her on that. I think I'm for, <laughs> I'm, I'm for opt out. I've read that book by Cass Sunstein about choice architecture and, uh, you know, behavioral economics. And I think in this case, uh, an opt out is a better approach. I would think you know, that would call. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, as always, you know, I'm a communications guy. Communication, communicate, over communicate as much as possible. And it doesn't mean that one or two or even a hundred parents aren't going to scream and yell and say, you have no right to do that. But this is a public health crisis and it's the right thing to do. And let's face it, we require it for lots of other things. I don't know why somehow requiring a vaccine on, on COVID is, is so different than requiring a vaccine on polio. Well, well, that's a valid point. I can just tell you this. So right now, the system right now, you, you say we're better off if they're in school. I mean, we don't have a testing program, a legitimate testing program, because uh, it, the testing program requires parents to sign a permission slip saying uh, their kids are, should be allowed to test. I'm going to tell anybody this. Most of you probably never coached in this, uh, anywhere, but particularly Chicago public schools. One of the most difficult things you have to do as a coach in the Chicago public schools is not teaching the kids the three-man weave. The most difficult thing you can do is getting the parent permission slip signed so that they could go on the bus to the next game. That's the hardest thing to do as a coach in the city of Chicago. Right. Permission slips. Permission slips. That's what, so Mayor Lori Lightfoot thinks, oh, I know how we're going to battle this COVID. We're going to get permission slips signed. Come on, Peter. I know. Well, you I'm with you on this. On this particular issue, I'm I'm with. Um, I'm, it should it should have been opt out, in my opinion. But you know, the mayor has her reasons, and she's a lawyer. I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Since when is making a legal <laughs> argument or a more? I guess she was making a moral argument. So. Yeah, morally repugnant. Next, wait, is it morally repugnant for a nurse to take a kid's temperature? I don't know. That's a quasi medical procedure. Maybe we need parent permission slips for that. Yeah. What a city. By the way, and was it, isn't it morally repugnant now that I think about it to pass a, a, a uh, to do, do away with the law that says you need parental notification for a minor to get an abortion? I wholeheartedly supported that. Wonder what the mayor's position is that, Peter. I don't know. I don't work for her or speak with her. <laughs> Peter's like, hey, man, don't put me on the hot seat. I don't work for her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Peter Cunningham. It's always a blast talking to you. And usually when you're on the show, I make you bring your guitar. But these are such stressful, trying times. I didn't uh, make you bring your guitar. But he's an excellent guitarist. And he uh, is a folk singer. I call you a folk singer. Uh, and right, uh, some awesome. maybe. Maybe next time I'll have you bring your guitar and you can serenade us with some Dylan. I'm saying it's the Hungry Brain on the uh, 28th. Say that again. I don't think people heard that. Go ahead. Uh, My band is playing at the Hungry Brain uh, on Belmont near Western on the 28th. And you have to have a fax card to get in there. Hopefully, um, hopefully, uh, you know, the Omicron wave will be receding a little bit. So the latest I hear that it is. Bring your fax card, bring your mask, and, you know, come have some fun and that is january 28th yeah very good and i uh, do you have a time nine o'clock nine o'clock all right 
Peter Cunningham, thank you very much for taking the time on a quick, uh, I called you, I think it was yesterday. I just had to bring you on the show and, uh, it's always fun talking to you and uh, probably do a better job of staying in touch with you uh, in the future. All right. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks for having me. See all ya. right. That's, that's the great Peter Cunningham. Also want to thank Maya Duke Masafa on the show earlier. And of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Maya and Peter can tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 